Leaving comfort is rough, but God was so enamored with us that he left the comfort of heaven. That's pretty local. We didn't deserve it, but he did it anyway. So God himself took on a fragile body. God of the universe got the flu and the common cold. He sweated and he bled. He took on haters. He was jumped by soldiers. People spat on him and ultimately murdered him. And in that weak, breakable body, Jesus sat with the contagious and the hurting. He listened, he healed them, he encouraged them, he taught them. And that's where he found us, in the sketchy places you wouldn't take tu familia. And rather than call us hopeless, Jesus pulled us out the gutter, placed hands on the addicted, shady, and diseased people. He looked us in the eyes and called us beloved children. This is the incarnation, God incarnate. God in the meat, God on the block, God on the street. And these are the stories of the people he met. Good morning, City Life Church. Good morning, friends. Good morning, visitors. Good to see you. Um, I'm excited to be here with you today. I feel like God has something for all of us, and uh, sometimes he speaks through us through the pastor who preaches. Sometimes he just preaches through his word, and so see what he has for you today, and uh, we're going to be today in Luke 9, 18 through 27, uh, Luke 9, 18 through 27. Um, this may be my worst title of any sermon I've ever written, New, Ser- New Savior Who Dis. Does anyone even know what I'm referencing? Like, do people get that? No? Nobody? So it's like way too obscure. New phone, who dis? Nobody? Okay, cool. Well, that's why it's one of the worst titles I've done. All right, we're going to be in Luke 9, 18 through 27. Luke 9, 18 through 27. We have Bibles available in the back. We have them in English and Espanol as well. Um, Luke 9, 18 through 27. And for those of you who didn't hear, hopefully in the new year, we uh, are, are going to be able to do Spanish translation for every service um, as someone donated the finances for us to have a translator, and someone donated the devices for us to translate. So um, those of you who don't understand what I said, stuff. <laughs> All right, so Luke 9, 18 through 27. So usually when we're saying he, we're talking about Jesus, right? Okay. While he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and raised the third day. Then he said to them all, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. And when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels, truly I tell you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. 
Well, guys, our, our passage today um, really begins earlier in the chapter, in Luke chapter 9, 7, when an old grumpy king named Herod sits on his throne of power, and on that throne that Herod sits on, he is terrified, terrified that something is coming to get him. He's already killed an important prophet named John the Baptist, and he asks his advisors, who is this new dude Jesus that I'm hearing about? What's the deal with him? Can someone tell me what's going on? He's probably racked with guilt for killing John because a girl came in and did a little nudie dance for him, and he said, cool, I'll do whatever you want. She said, I want John's head on a platter, and he did it. He's worried Jesus is the prophet Elijah. If not John returned from the grave, it might be Elijah. And Elijah is known for prophesying death on kings, going up to kings, pointing his finger in their face and saying, God will take you down. Talking to the queen and saying, you know what? Your blood will be in the streets and there will be dogs licking it up. That's Elijah. And that's who Herod is a little bit worried about. Is this guy Elijah or John? Either way, I killed this dude and this dude kills kings. Not a good idea. And Luke says this in verse, uh, verse chapter 8, 9, 8. He was perplexed, Herod, because some said that John had been raised from the dead, some that Elijah had appeared, and others that one of the ancient prophets had risen. But I beheaded John, Herod said. But who is this I hear such things about? And he wanted to see him. Everyone else wanted to know. Everyone wants to know today the same thing. Who is this Jesus? Is he like a good dude or is he God? And if he's God... That changes the way we should treat all of this. Would you guys pray with me? I'm just going to pray for a moment um, in Spanish, poorly, and then English. Dios, gracias por estar aquí hoy. Gracias por amar a todos los que están presentes. Danos una comprensión más profunda de tu amor esta mañana y ayúdanos a encontrar familia y comunidad en tu iglesia. Padre, por favor, cambianos por tu bien. God, we thank you for being here today. Thank you for loving everyone who is present. God, in this moment, I just want to pray for those who were hurt or killed last night in the drive-by in Mount Hope, just around the corner. For those um, whose family member will not return tonight. God, we pray your blessing on that family. God, we don't even know who that is yet. Um, for the, the person who's right now in the hospital, um, God, we ask your mercy on them and your healing. Uh, God, we ask that this terrible thing would draw people to you, and God, I pray against revenge in the community. And this morning, God, we ask that you give us a deeper understanding of your love. Help us to find family and community in your church. Father, pre please change us for your good. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing to you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today I'm going to give you three conclusions from a talk with the Messiah. Three conclusions from a talk with the Messiah. And our first one is this. It's um, surprising, but number one is this. Jesus is the Savior. That's, that's a, well, you didn't see that coming. Verse 18, while he was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist. Elijah, others, that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. This is huge that Peter would say this. Peter has seen enough of Jesus at this point to know that Jesus was special. But special 
like doesn't necessarily mean like God. It just means special. So Jesus was doing things, though, that, that even the famed prophet Elijah that we just spoke about would dream of. He would dream of doing these things. Elijah was famous for this time when he was with a, a poor widow and her son and he helped to feed them, keep them alive with bread. But right before this passage that we just read, Jesus fed 5,000 people and he healed many who were sick. And actually, he, filled, healed five, uh, he fed 5,000 dudes um, because they only counted dudes for some reason. And so there would have been much, many, many more people most likely that were fed by Jesus. So Elijah, a little bread for a widow and her son, Jesus, fed the multitudes. Elijah was known for uh, praying for a drought and then praying for rain, and then God gave rain. Jesus is called the living water. Once you drink the living water, he says you will never thirst again. So you have Elijah, and you have people saying, man, this guy's like the, the new Elijah, and it's like, mm, no, he, he's not the new Elijah. Elijah's like the mini-me of Jesus. That's, it's the other way around. So when Jesus asks who do you think I am? And people respond, Elijah. Jesus has to laugh. Child, please. You serious? Elijah? Elijah. You think that I'm Elijah? Jesus is so much bigger than Elijah. Jesus is so much greater than Elijah. Yeah, I said, child, please. Then the biggest loudmouth knucklehead in the group, Peter, is the one who gets it right. And, and here's the thing. I actually had a different... Um, thing that I was going to preach on this week. Uh, it was going to be Peter and Jesus and this thing called the transfiguration. But I, I, I realized as I was studying it, you guys need to hear this first. To understand the, the mystery of the transfiguration, how important it is, you have to have some background. So this entire sermon is background, but I think it's important too. So no, he's not Elijah. He is the Christ. He is the savior of the world. He says, you are the Christos Theos which roughly translates as the Christ of God or God's savior of the world. So Peter is on it right here. And Peter, like, I think sometimes like the the best people can have the lowest lows and the highest highs. And I think that's who Peter is. Peter gets it right an awful lot because Peter's bold, right? No one would have been bold enough to say that to Jesus because what if Jesus went, are you serious? That's idolatry. Don't call me God. Like, he could have been worried about that. But Peter was Peter, right? Peter's got a Peter. And so he did, and Jesus commended him. Yes, you got it right. But like many of us, many expected something different, something different from this Messiah, something different from this King, something different from this Christ of God, as Peter calls him. The Messiah they were waiting for was going to be the Messiah that set all things back to right. What does that mean, to set all things back to right? It meant if you were in Israel, you were being held against your own will. You were being overtaken by the Roman government. So if, 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 if you were me, if, if, I don't even want to say, if we were there at that time, how would we have felt about Rome? Those guys are jerks. Those guys have taken over our country. So if we're, if we're praying for a Messiah to come, what's he going to do? The Messiah's going to come and take Rome down. That's what we're waiting for, right? We're waiting for the new Messiah, for Rome to be overturned. In the same way, many of us think that the Messiah is going to do the same thing for us. We have all these things that are going on in our lives, and we just think, Jesus is going to fix it all, isn't he? And maybe he's just not fixed it all because I've not been faithful enough. But I tell you, Jesus is present in the midst of those things. Jesus is with you. 
Jesus loves you, but I can't promise you he's going to overturn the Rome in your life because he didn't do it here. Not in the way that was conventional or the way that we would have thought he would have done it. So here we have everyone waiting for newer, better version of Elijah. And we know that Elijah took on the government. Elijah took on the man. But this is not what Jesus would do in the same way. Elijah was famous for calling down the wrath of God upon evil men. They were in a a battle upon Mount Horeb. And he called down the fire and consumed the Lord's altar. And then they went and they killed all these bad dudes. It's like pretty, pretty aggressive if you read it. And it's, it's what people would have been looking for. This Elijah, this guy who would save us all. And if that's who Elijah was, then who was Jesus going to be when he came? Who was the Messiah going to be? I tell you, he was going to be riding on two bald eagles with a bazooka on his shoulder. That is the Messiah that they were waiting for. They didn't know about bazookas, but that's what he was going to be like. <laughs> Jesus would destroy the devil himself, but he would do it through his death. His sacrifice, his grace, nonviolence is the way he accomplished this. We expect the victory of Christ to come about in our, in our community if we just work hard enough, if we just fight hard enough. But what if it is our weakness? What if it is grace? What if it is love that brings about true change in this community, in our communities, in our marriages, in our life, in our singleness, in our school? I had a friend on the block who talked to me about this very idea of me being nonviolent on the block. And he said to me uh, on Tuesday, Pastor, have you really never been shot before? He asked me that question. Pastor, have you really never been shot before? This man had been shot six times before he was 16 when he lived in uh, Cabrini Green, in, um, Cabrini Greens, right? Cabrini Greens? In uh, Chicago. And he moved here and this story all, all happened because he was telling me the story about the time when he was, he was guarding a, a weed dispensary. And um, he left his gun, and he got shot in the head. And I said, did you, did you call an ambulance? And he said, no. No, I didn't call an ambulance. I was like, bro, you got shot in the head. Why didn't you call an ambulance? I was used to it. Like, I had been used to being shot at that point. Violence had not solved anything, and, and his ability to have his gun at that moment would have not solved it either. What happened last night at 42nd Street will not solve anything. It's just going to continue. It's a cycle that needs to be broken, and that cycle cannot be broken by violence. The same man asked me if I pack when I'm on the street. I told him no. I told him I'd take my Bible, and that's it. And I can tell you that there are um, some people that keep an eye out for me, and they say it's because you only carry your Bible, Pastor. But that is the way we break violence, with peace, with love, with hope, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. We expect the victory of Christ to come about in this community if we just work hard enough, but that's not the way it goes. We expect if we fight against violence, that might change things, but I promise you, that's not the way it goes. I am here for the gospel, and violence will not change our neighborhood. The gospel will change our neighborhood. God's Holy Spirit will change our neighborhood. Prayer will change our neighborhood. We think of all the active things we could do to stop something bad, and and isn't it always the last resort to pray? What if prayer became our first, first resort to go to God and ask for his help? I'm preaching to myself, friends. I will sit with anyone who lets me. Fighting them won't do anything. 
It is love that has power. I can't think of anything that my fighting will solve. I only use it to protect those whom I love. That's the only time I might use a little bit of violence. Don't want to say anything otherwise, but I can honestly tell you that it is not violence that will change anything. Matthew 5, 43 through 45 says this. Matthew 5, 43 through 45. You have heard, okay, guess who's talking? Anyone guessing? The, the, the answer is Jesus. It's almost always Jesus. Um, this is Jesus talking. Someone didn't want to be like, uh, Peter? Yeah. Okay, so this is Jesus talking. Matthew uh, 5, 43 through 45. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And I tell you, that friend said to me, doesn't the Bible say eye for an eye? And I say, well, guess what? Jesus said something else. Jesus said something else. He said, turn the other cheek. And I tell you, turning the other cheek is not something that we can do in our own power, friends. Because if you sock me in the face, I want to sock you right back. That is a natural human tendency to protect myself. But it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that perhaps we can respond to violence in a different way. So he came as a nonviolent king, but surely he defended himself. No. Actually, he chose death because he loved us. And that was his plan all along. And that's our second point, that his death and his resurrection was his perfectly timed idea for your salvation. His death and his resurrection was his perfectly timed idea for your salvation. Now, what is salvation? It means to be saved, right? Point number two, help me out, Nate. Point number two, thanks. Verse 21, but he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. So the guy we look up to is saying, it's necessary that I'm going to go through all this. He didn't choose an easier path. He didn't go an easier way. He said, it's necessary for me to die. And so if we have someone to look up to, we look up to him a non-violent king. Now, am I going to tell Tan over here not to train in MMA? No, man, he's got to do it to the best of his ability because if someone comes at me, I might need some help. <laughs> and I appreciate it. And I appreciate that there are some of you who are made to protect others. But when you are attacked, is our first thought to pray for that person? When you are attacked by gossip, is it your first thought to pray for that person? Jesus' first thought was their salvation. Jesus' first thought was the sacrifice he would make for them, and he allowed it. Don't think that people would take away Jesus' dignity without his, um, without his permission. Without his permission. So here he is telling the disciples to chill because his glory will most likely be known through his death, but at the right time. Now, there were several times when people wanted to kill Jesus in the Bible. And it's crazy because he just sneaks out. Like the Bible would just say like, yeah, they're like about to like do this angry mob and Jesus just like, like I got to think those sandals he had made him quieter or something like that. Um, but Jesus managed in his little tivas to get out of there several times because it wasn't the right time yet. It wasn't the right time. He had more teaching to do. He had more healing to do. He had more suffering to do. Life is hard. We can agree there is suffering, right? We can agree there is pain everywhere. But we can also know that there is a plan behind it. And the one who tells us there's a plan behind it is the one who has suffered more than us, who has suffered at such an extreme level that we cannot understand. 
Now, I want to just do one quick note about God has a plan, that quote, God has a plan. Um, If you have a friend who's suffering and you come alongside them, um, God has a plan can actually be a really jerky thing to say. So be really careful when you tell someone who's just lost a family member, who's very ill in the hospital, well, just God has a plan. Because you can say something true and it still can be a jerky thing to say. Um, So what I tell you when you're with someone who suffers When you're with someone who's in pain, when you're with someone who's in addiction, you can tell them this, I love you, I care about you, I'm praying for you, or even better, sometimes God can use you to sit with them. Just sit. In the Bible, there's a dude named Job who goes through everything you can imagine, and his friends get it right for three days because they sit in the mud with him. He's just there in the mud, tossing dirt on his head, which is just like a sign of like his his utter... um, sadness and and grief, and his friends, for the first three days, sit there with him in silence. That is one of the best ways you can tell your friends that God has a plan, to sit with them, to love them, to bring them food, to care for them, but not to just say, hey, God has a plan, this bad thing that happened in your life, oh, it's all his plan, it's just, it's just jerky. Okay, so, but it's true though, sometimes suffering is part of the plan, isn't it? Because Jesus planned to suffer. There's nothing that could be done to Jesus that was against his own will. He was hurt, murdered, abused because he allowed it. He chose it. I tell you, when we ask, why would a good God allow us to suffer? I tell you, the better question is, why would a good God suffer for us when we deserved it? Why would he take on what we deserve? That's the glory of the gospel, friends. That Jesus chose suffering for you. He chose to take on pain for you. He chose to take on the cross for you. He cared enough for you. So when we say, God, why do you allow this suffering? We say back, God, thank you for suffering for us when we deserved it. God left the perfection of heaven for you because he loved you. He did it all because he cared about you. And he came to this earth and he lived a life where, let's just be honest, to go from perfection, where you feel no pain in heaven, no no physical pain, to come to this earth when you're like me, you like sleep at night and you like sprain your ankle for some reason. Like this is the earth that Jesus came to, right? To To pain, to heat, to the flu, to viruses, to sickness, to nausea. And then to people talking badly about him and to him and ultimately arresting him and then taking him and, and pulling out his beard and spitting on him and dressing him up like a fool and laughing at him. This is what he did. And guess what? He chose this. He chose the nails in his hand. He chose the nails in his feet because he loved you and he wanted to die as that sacrifice for you because of the wrath that we deserved that should happen, and let's talk about it, man. When there's a killing, and it's someone you love, don't you feel that wrath inside of you that that other person deserves it now? We deserve wrath from God, and yet he poured it out upon himself. He poured it out upon his son because he loved you. That's the gospel. We deserved this, but he gave us this. We deserve pain and suffering and sorrow, and he took it on on purpose for us because he loved us. And then he showed how big he was by conquering sin and death and rising again. Conquering sin and death, showing that death was below him. 
stomping upon it, stomping upon evil because he loved us. That's the gospel. So when we ask God, should we suffer? Why do we suffer? Why are things hard? There's a response like this, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 16. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. Let me tell you the last time I preached this. I preached this aloud as drug dealers were trying to to rev the engines of their motorcycles over my preaching. I didn't choose it for that moment, but God brought it there. And it was a beautiful reminder that our suffering is bigger than hate. His grace is bigger than hate and violence. And Jesus was willing to take that on himself. So to embrace the gospel is not only to be forgiven, but to suffer. To know Jesus is to know suffering. Because we call him, what do we call him? A man of sorrows. To embrace Jesus is to go down on a road that at times feels lonely. Jesus says that he separates families at times. Now, I pray that our families would be united. But Jesus does not say that he makes it easy on us. Relationships will struggle because of Jesus. But that's a, that's a given. It's a promise. To embrace Jesus is to go down a road that at times feels lonely, but it's much like his road, and he understands what it feels like. So then in verse 23, he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Uh, can I just say, this is really hard, okay? Reading this and not recognizing this is really hard um, is to not... Uh, understand the weight of what Jesus is saying. Verse 24, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses it or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and that of the Father and the holy angels. So friends, drugs, sex, power, money, relationships, all call to you for their allegiance. But Jesus doesn't demand allegiance. His blood does. The free gift of his sacrifice screams out for your loyalty. And how can we not be loyal in the face of this great sacrifice? This was not the Messiah that they were waiting for. Usually you will follow a king into battle and fight for him. But what kind of king dies and then expects us to follow him still? The Messiah was supposed to destroy all the oppressors. Jesus almost says they're going to destroy him. Then he tells us to die too? Like, cool, okay, Jesus, that's the type of king I was expecting to follow. Justo Gonzalez says it this way. He says, the redefinition of messiahship immediately leads to redefinition of discipleship. Those who follow Jesus are following one who marches inexorably toward the cross, right? Toward suffering. The only way to follow Jesus is to take the same path. Husto's going to hit you a little bit later in the message too. He's, he's, he's got it going on this week. Now this is not only an invitation to suffer, friends. The cross is a sign of enemies of the state. Now don't worry, I'm not about to like lead this like, like weird coup, 
Um, but I will tell you, Jesus is offering them a place as the enemy of Rome. To serve Jesus means to embrace the kingdom of God, which means you will be an enemy of power at times. You will be an enemy of those in power at times. And Jesus meant it. He wasn't using hyperbole here. These guys all died. There's one dude who made it alive. And he was, he was, it's said that he was burned alive and he just was not consumed by the flames. So they just sent him on an island. They're like, he can't do any damage from the island. And then he wrote a book of the Bible. So there you go. But Jesus' disciples are getting a true promise from him. You will be tortured and you will be killed. You guys have to understand this, disciples. So now he's not saying that to you. But friends, I believe that this can be true. If you follow Jesus, it may not be the walk in the park that you hope it might be. Now, Indian theologian Takamanjan Ao, I think I got it right, he says this, Luke makes it clear that this journey is a growing process. It involves uncertainty, ambiguity, suffering, and shame. Disciples who are willing to sacrifice their lives for the sake of Jesus will truly know what it means to live. So friends, it's going to be hard. There's going to be suffering, but the presence of God will be palpable, will be tangible. You can touch it and feel it. Have you ever suffered some horrendous loss? And I have, and I have felt God more present than ever. There have been times in our life where just amongst ourselves, we'll say, gosh, do you ever miss how close it felt? How close God felt when we were suffering? I don't really like to pray for that, but I will tell you that that happens when you suffer. If you embrace God, reach out to him, allow him to work, he will be ever-present. Through the forgiveness of God, we can become a new person in Christ, and the Holy Spirit envelops that person. The Holy Spirit is fully present with us. Ezekiel eleven nineteen through 20, an old prophet in the Old Testament, he says this, I will give them integrity of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh. So they will follow my statutes, keep my ordinances, and practice them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. Now, this is a promise to Israel, but I tell you, this is very much what it looks like when we embrace Jesus. That he takes our heart of stone and he puts in a soft, spongy heart that can be broken in our suffering. And it's good, though. It's good. Friends, you can't make this happen by working out your mercy muscles. This only comes through time with God, time in his word, encouragement from others, and it is a free gift that God gives you his new heart. Pastor of Epiphany Fellowship in Philly, Eric Mason says this, he says, a disciple of Jesus Christ is one who has renounced himself and pledged his life in a lifetime apprenticeship to the Lord. A disciple is unequivocally committed to Jesus and his goals for life. We say this all around all the time here. This is what we say. This is what I say to you. You don't got this. When I'm talking about following Jesus, a lot of times I'll say you got this, but I I need to have like a little disclaimer at the bottom. You don't have this without Jesus. You don't got this by yourself. It is only accomplished through the goodness of Christ. And so when I tell you, you can suffer and you can feel God's presence, and you cannot destroy yourself, it's because God is there in the midst of your chaos, and he loves you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says it this way, Jesus invites us to come and die. And make no mistake, all but one of these dudes will follow Jesus and die. 
It's not your best life now. Oh my gosh, if I hear your best life now one more time, I'm going to lose it. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. Because we're saying your best life now means a better house, a better car, better relationships, better things that you want. And I promise you, that is not what Jesus is talking about. Now, he can choose to bless you with material things. Most likely he will if you're trustworthy to to, to share with others. But I tell you, to follow Jesus means suffering and not always your best life now in the way the world tells you. So, we're called to follow a good God. We need to trust his good plan for our lives And we don't say that to our friends in the hospital. And we have to embrace his way of life. And I tell you, his burden is light. Have you ever heard the term, never bring a knife to a gunfight? But what if there's something more powerful than power? More potent than the sword? More firepower than a weapon? There's a movie that I like called Gran Torino. Um, uh, I think it's rated R, so, you know... Your pastor's not telling you you should go see it. And it, I, I checked in with some friends, and I said, hey, Gran Torino, it's 10 years old now. Can I do spoilers? And I was, all the people I talked to said, you're allowed to give spoilers from a 10-year-old movie. So if you have not seen Gran Torino yet, that's your fault. Okay. So there's a character. Clint Eastwood plays a character named Walt Kowalski, right? He's a retired auto worker, and he's a veteran of the Korean War, and he is salty, right? And also, not just salty, but like he's racist. And when I say that he's racist, I mean like he's really, really, really racist. Um, But what's funny is sometimes things change outside of our control and we are changed. And he befriends a young Hmong man named Tao. Now Tao is being recruited in this inner city uh, context by his cousins to join a Hmong gang. And he refuses to join the gang. Now, Walt Kowalski gets Tao a job after they become friends. But wherever Tao goes, the gangbangers destroy his stuff. They beat him up. They intimidate him. They want him to know that they are not going anywhere, and they will follow him forever. Now, Walt decides that he's going to do something about it. And this racist, mean old cuss goes to the home of the gang and roughs some of the men up, telling them to leave Tao alone. Now, you guys know, right, that there is something called retribution that we've been talking about today, right? So the gang uh, responds exactly as you would think they would by doing a drive-by of Tao's house, severely beating, I'm looking for children, um, and, and raping his sister. It's a sad story, but there's beauty in the midst. And even then, though, Tao and Walt begin to plan and train for their revenge as a former soldier Walt knows what he's going to do. He's got a plan already, and he's training Tao on the night that they go for their revenge, though. Something happens. Old man Walt locks Tao in the basement, and he goes to exact revenge on the gangbangers by himself. And you think, what kind of firepower does he have? He's already shown many of his weapons in this movie. What is he going to do? So he goes out to the house of the gang members and he gets the attention of the entire neighborhood. By the way, we know that a a loud church is a good church, right? Because that means it's living, right? Okay, a crying church ain't a dying church. So on the night of the revenge, Walt shows up at the house of the gangbangers and he makes sure the whole community sees that he is there at the house. He wants witnesses 
And I'm like, how is he going to take out all these gangbangers to stop them from terrorizing Tao and his family? How is he going to do it? But he's Clint Eastwood, right? You know what Clint Eastwood can do, right? And like every time someone shoots in any other movie at Clint Eastwood, it's like he just does that, shoots like six guys, does this, shoots like seven more guys, and you're like, he's going to take out the gang because he's Clint Eastwood and he talks like this, and you know that he's going to take him out, right? So he shows up and he starts to say his racist stuff right directed at these relatives of Tao, which is really funny because he loves Tao and he loves his sister, and still he's like really racist. I don't even understand it. Um, but he gets the attention of the neighborhood. And then in that moment, he's got all these guns focused on him from all the gang members. And I'm like, Clint Eastwood's going to Clint Eastwood right now. It's about to go down, right? And he goes like this. And he goes to pull his gun. And he gets a lighter. But when he pulls the lighter, they light him up. And they shoot him. Many, many, many times. Walt falls to the ground with his lighter in his hand. What happens then is that they all come to see what happened. The police are there. And Tao sees that the revenge that was extracted upon these men is that Walt was willing to lay down his life for his friends. Walt was willing to die because now, with all the witnesses, all the gangbangers are going to prison, and Tao finally has a chance to work without someone chasing him down and stealing his tools. Tao finally has a chance to live his life without being harassed or fear of his sister being abused or raped. All because a man went to the face of violence and was unwilling to show violence. Jesus' most potent weapon against evil is love, is sacrifice, is mercy. But it was not according to the crowds. It was not according to their expectations that Jesus had for him that they had for Jesus. He didn't come into town riding a grizzly bear and throwing an A-bomb at Rome, did he? Instead, he came on a donkey. He came on a colt. He came in weakness. He came in a fragile body that if you cut it, it would bleed. Jesus came in humility and died for us. You can't exact revenge on someone who dies for someone else, can you? How do you get back at someone who dies for you? How do you get back at someone who died for someone else? The cycle is finished. Now, sometimes when I turn off my ceiling fan, it goes for a little while longer. Friends, that's what we're in. The energy behind the fan is slowly dwindling, and the cycle of violence will end one day, and it will stop. And we will declare Jesus as the Lord and his victory over evil will be complete. The cycle is finished and it is finished with Jesus. Now let me close with this one quote by Justo Gonzalez that is bomb. Here we go. The cross may be said to be the ultimate act of violence against violence. A violent response to violence simply results in more violence. A lack of violence simply lets it continue unabated. What Jesus does is to take violence upon himself, to direct it at himself, and to respond to it in a way that violence cannot abide with love and forgiveness. This is so radical that violence is defanged and does not know how to respond. How cool is that? 
We think about the serpent in the garden that says, Adam and Eve, I got your number, and yet Jesus has defanged violence. You have a snake that just gums at your arms, can't do anything to you. That is where violence is now because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we push back, and we know that there's still some energy, but we know that it's been turned off. And the day will come when violence ceases, and we will together, I don't know if we're going to join hands and sing We Are the World, but I do know that we will together sing in all different languages, glory to him who sits on the throne forever and ever. And that will be a great day, because violence will have been defanged. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you that you are present. I thank you that you give us hope in the face of the things that should just swallow us up. God, many of us come bearing burdens, pain, hurt. Many of us come with these hopes that have been unrealized, that we've wanted so bad for our life, and yet you've not delivered in the way we thought you would. But you're here. You're here with us amongst our aches and our pains, our aches and our bones and our aches in our, our hearts and our stomachs as we ache for a better day, as we hope for something greater than what we have in front of us. God, for those of us here today who, uh, who feel the need to surrender to you, God, I pray that you would give them the ability to speak to lay down their life, to pick up their cross as you have told us to, and that it would begin a beautiful journey to follow you. If that's any of you today, I encourage you to go to someone here today, be it me or anyone else, when we pray and say, I want to give my life to Jesus and follow him. I'm afraid, but I want to follow him. I want to pick up my cross and find out what the heck that means. God, for the rest of us, I pray that you would help us to see the severity of our sin and how much bigger your grace is. And it is in, in this moment that we come and we silently confess our sins to you. What a beautiful day it is when we who come and we surrender and we have no strength of our own and yet you offer that grace and forgiveness to us still. God, might we be warriors for your gospel, not weak, not ashamed, not sickly, but meek, powerful, but under your control. As one would steer a Mustang 5.0, God, would you allow us to work under your direction. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.